On June 24, 1906, Egypt's Minister of Foreign Affairs, Boutros Ghali, arrived in the small village of Denshawai on the Nile Delta. He was there to serve on a special tribunal, deciding the fates of 52 Egyptian villagers accused of attacking British officers. The villagers insisted it was self-defense. The British called it premeditated murder. As Minister of Foreign Affairs, court cases like these were not in Ghali's job description. This seat should have been filled by Egypt's Minister of Justice, but he was out of the country on vacation. The British insisted that the matter be handled quickly, so Ghali had hurried to Denshawai. As Ghali took his place at the head of the tribunal, he looked out over the scene of his first ever criminal case. He would be working with one other Egyptian and three Englishmen, two of whom spoke no Arabic at all. Ghali had no formal legal training and had never served on a court. The outcome of this trial would follow Ghali for the next four years, the final four years of his life. One death can change the world. At least, that's what assassins believe. Welcome to Assassinations, a ParCast original. Every Monday, we examine the famous assassins of history and the men and women who were assassinated. I'm your host, Bill Thomas. And I'm your host, Kate Leonard. You can find episodes of Assassinations and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Assassinations for free on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Assassinations in the search bar. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. This is our first episode on Boutros Ghali, the Prime Minister of Egypt. In 1910, he was killed by Ibrahim Nassif al-Wardani, a young Egyptian nationalist. This week, you'll hear about the lives of Boutros Ghali and Ibrahim Nassif al-Wardani, and how the fight for autonomy in Egypt led these two men to their tragic end. Next week, we'll explore the trial of al-Wardani and how Ghali's legacy shaped the colonial future of Egypt. Four years after the Denshawai Tribunal, on February 9, 1910, 64-year-old Boutros Ghali was once again called in front of an important government body. This time, however, he was Egypt's prime minister. He was speaking to the Egyptian General Assembly, the country's legislative body. Ghali was persuading the representatives to sign a deal giving the foreign-owned Suez Canal Company even more rights over Egypt's most important transportation asset. The Suez Canal was the only direct route from the Indian Ocean to the Mediterranean and Red Seas. Far above Ghali in the upper gallery, a 23-year-old pharmacist and political organizer named Ibrahim Nassif al-Wardani watched the proceedings. 
He was one of a growing group of Egyptian nationalists who wanted the Suez Canal to return to local control as soon as possible. As Al-Wardani listened to the debate on the assembly floor, he grew more and more furious. It became clear that the General Assembly had no real say over the future of the canal. The decision would be made, as always, behind closed doors between the British and the Egyptian elite, men like Boutros Ghali. Al-Wardani was a passionate advocate for Egyptian independence. He hated the way the colonial British had influenced his nation's development for decades. He wondered if there was any way he could bring down the complicit Egyptian cabinet and force the power back into the hands of the people. But he was just a young man with no formal power. The only solution he could see, assassinate Prime Minister Boutros Ghali. To understand why Al-Wardani wanted to kill Prime Minister Ghali, we first need to explore the history of colonization in Egypt. For millennia, Egypt was the target of foreign invasion. From Greek commander Alexander the Great in 332 BCE to the Roman Empire three centuries later, various nations conquered Egypt and shaped its culture. Syrian Muslims in 639 CE, then Christian Crusaders in 1099 CE, ensured that Egypt's population was religiously diverse. In 1517, Egypt was swallowed up by the Ottoman Empire, where it would remain until 1914. This constant stream of invading empires all exerted tremendous control on Egypt's finances, government, and civilian life. By the mid-1800s, over 100,000 Europeans, mostly Italian and Greek, had settled in Egypt. Europeans also held most of the upper positions in the army, business, and government. A system called the Capitulations created a separate legal code for Europeans, making them a privileged class. In essence, the Ottoman Empire had treaties with European nations guaranteeing a set of rights to all European travelers in their territory, while the empire's individual nations were permitted to govern their own population. So while native Egyptians could be arrested, tried, and punished by local courts, Europeans weren't held to the same laws. One of Egypt's greatest assets, the Suez Canal, was also dominated by Europeans. Originally financed by the French, the canal was an engineering marvel, opened in 1869 to connect the Mediterranean Sea, Red Sea, and Indian Ocean. In 1875, the bankrupt Egyptian government sold its 44% share of the Suez Canal Company to the British. With their foothold in the region secured, the British worked to stabilize Egypt's finances and improve their agriculture. In other words, they wrested control of the economy. Then, in 1882, British troops invaded Egypt to put down a rebellion, after which they remained as an occupying force. Although Britain now controlled Egypt's finances and maintained a steady military presence, they never formally absorbed Egypt into the British Empire, possibly because they were afraid of angering the Ottomans. Instead, Britain remained an unofficial colonizer, while publicly maintaining that Egypt was an independent nation. 
England also took measures to weaken the country politically. They limited representative government and underfunded public education. They also halted construction of factories and other forms of industrial modernization. Britain was the superpower. Egypt was to remain its agricultural servant. The financial and military stranglehold made it difficult for Egyptians to maintain control over their own country. Almost 30 years before Ibrahim al-Wardani lamented the British influence in Egypt, another nationalist, an Egyptian army colonel named Ahmed Urabi, tried to reclaim their homeland. He called this new movement Egypt for Egyptians, and it caught on like wildfire. On June 11, 1882, a full-scale riot against European influence erupted in Alexandria. Europeans were attacked, stores were looted, and buildings burned throughout the city. 50 Europeans and 250 Egyptians were killed in the violence. A mixed European-Egyptian committee was formed to investigate the Alexandria riot. The talks ultimately proved fruitless when the European participants accused their Egyptian cohorts of being nationalist apologists. An armed conflict broke out, which killed 10,000 Egyptian soldiers, but only 100 British people. Ultimately, the rebels were defeated and their leader was banished from Egypt. But the nationalist flame they ignited lit the way for future movements and revolutionaries including, eventually, Ibrahim al-Wardani. Ibrahim Nassif al-Wardani was born in 1887. His father was a senior police officer in the provinces outside of Cairo, and his uncle was a pasha, a title granted to Ottoman dignitaries and military leaders. This put al-Wardani in the higher level of Egyptian society, though still below the British. His father died in 1906, leaving the 19-year-old Alwardani, his mother, and his younger sister with the family house and a small plot of land. Alwardani used the money from his inheritance to go to Europe and study pharmacology. He spent the next several years traveling and studying in Lausanne, Paris, and London. But while in Europe, Alwardani's greatest education was a political one. The Ottoman Empire was in decline, and ethnic groups like the Greeks, Bulgarians, Turks, and Serbs desired their independence. At the time, many nationalists believed that violence, terrorism, and assassinations were the best way to bring about social and political change. While living in Lausanne, Alwardani and his fellow students formed a society called Misra, the Arabic word for Egypt. Misra was a gathering place for Egyptians living and studying abroad, where they could discuss nationalist ideals. The society grew popular, spawning new chapters throughout Europe. In 1907, al visited London to speak at a Misra meeting about what Egyptian students like him were learning from their time in Europe. In a stirring speech, he said, We are thirsty for development and progress. We consider ourselves capable of self-government. We therefore call for complete independence and for our right to self-determination without foreign intervention in the different field of endeavor of our national life. 
Long live Egyptian nationalism and down with any power that threatens our rights. When Ibrahim al-Wardani returned to Egypt in January of 1909 at the age of 22, he opened his own pharmacy in Cairo. But life as a shopkeeper, even in Egypt's bustling metropolis, wasn't enough to satisfy him. He quickly became an active member of Mustafa Kemal's Watani Party, a nascent nationalist movement that fought for Egypt's freedom from British interference. When Alwardani joined, the Nationalist Party was in mourning for the recent death of its legendary leader and founder and was unsure of what the future held. For Alwardani, this was the perfect opportunity to make an impact. As he was pulled deeper into the nationalist movement, he came to find that Egypt's political system was more complicated than he'd believed. Not only were the British holding Egypt in a stranglehold, but many high-class Egyptian leaders were all too willing to collaborate with the Europeans in order to maintain their own status. Despite their shared nationality, al-Wardani came to view these Egyptian elites as enemies to his cause. But it wasn't until he was sitting in the balcony at the General Assembly watching Prime Minister Boutros Ghali speak that Alwardani realized how deep that enmity ran. He could never reason with these elites. He couldn't unseat them from power peacefully either. The European influence ran too deep. If he wanted to take back the country, he would have to do it by force. Coming up, the life of his victim, Boutros Ghali, and the political blunders that would eventually lead to his death. Now, back to the story. In 1906, 19-year-old Ibrahim al-Wardani committed himself to the fight for Egyptian autonomy. When he returned home from Europe three years later, he focused his anger on the Egyptian men in power who he felt were serving the British instead of their own country, men like Prime Minister Boutros Ghali. Ghali was born in 1846 to a Coptic Christian family in Upper Egypt. His home was in a small village outside Cairo along the Nile River. Even though Copts were a religious minority in Egypt, Ghali's family was relatively powerful. His father worked as a steward on the estate of Prince Mustafa Fadl, and Ghali grew up surrounded by wealth and comfort. Ghali's family made sure he had the best education available. He was sent away to elite schools and showed an early aptitude for languages, mastering Arabic, Turkish, Persian, English, and French. Ghali loved learning so much that he even used his pocket money to hire a personal tutor. At age 27, Ghali put his language skills to use as an interpreter in the Alexandria Chamber of Commerce. His fluency with language caught the eye of the Minister of Justice who invited him to take the position of head clerk. Even though Ghali had no background in law, he went to work translating European laws and codes. This may seem like a menial task, but it gave Ghali an intimate knowledge of Egypt's justice system at a crucial point in the country's history. Ghali showed a natural aptitude, and he soon found himself working with the best Egyptian legal minds to set up the mixed court system. This was the first attempt in Egyptian history to combine the structures of British civil law with Islamic principles. 
This new court would be a place where disputes between Egyptians and foreign nationals could be decided without being biased to one side or the other. With his new success, Ghali made sure not to forget where he came from. He wrote to the Khedive, the Islamic head of state, to ask permission to establish a council of Coptic laymen to weigh in on financial and civil affairs in the country. This would ensure that the religious minority still had a say in state business. Ghali's hard work was rewarded in 1880 when, at the age of 34, he became the first Coptic Christian to be awarded the honorary rank of Pasha, one of the highest titles in Egypt. Four years later, Ghali received another promotion. He was to head a commission in charge of appointing judges to the native courts. This was a brand new form of civil court for Egyptian natives, separate from the previous national system that blended European and Sharia law. Ghali made sure that Copts were well represented. His critics, however, said that he was appointing unqualified candidates based on religion only. Several members of the Advisory Council of Laws even tried to have him removed from his position, but their efforts were unsuccessful. The disagreement escalated in 1886, when Ghali was appointed head of the Egyptian Sharia court system. Egyptian Muslims were skeptical of having a copt in charge of their Islamic religious courts. There were even rumors that Ghali planned to abolish the religious courts altogether. No evidence of any such plan has survived, so the rumors may have been nothing more than anti-Coptic bigotry. But for the first time in Ghali's life, there were public protests against him. They would not be the last. Around 1894, at the age of 48, Boutros Ghali was appointed Minister of Foreign Affairs. For a colonial country like Egypt, this was a tricky position to hold. Egypt was still technically part of the Ottoman Empire, but the Ottomans had little presence in the country. The British insisted they weren't in charge, but in reality, they made all the important legislative and financial decisions. And while the Egyptians wanted their own power and self-determination, they could never quite wiggle their way out from under England's thumb. Ghali had little freedom to make his own decisions, even as his countrymen looked to him for hope. Still, Ghali was well-suited for his responsibilities as Minister of Foreign Affairs. He was a skilled negotiator, able to go back and forth from the Egyptians to the British and represent the best of each side to the other. An unnamed British official commented that Ghali manages to retain the favor of the Egyptians by sympathizing with their views. Then he proceeds to do all in his power to expedite affairs by throwing his lot in with us. Given Ghali's willingness to work with both sides, it's clear the British saw him as someone who could gain the trust of Egyptian officials, but whose true loyalties were with British interests. He maintained the fiction that Egypt was an independent nation while also helping to pass legislation that gave more control to the British. This gift for compromise would become Ghali's downfall. Ghali made several controversial decisions that, taken alone, each could have been a minor scandal. But taken together, they made Ghali the top enemy for Egyptian nationalists. The first concerned what to do with Sudan, 
the region directly to Egypt's south. The territory had been disputed for years, but Egyptians considered it a rightful part of their nation and wanted to reunify. Britain wanted to make Sudan an official part of the British Empire. The negotiations to resolve this issue went on for years, and in January 1899, the two sides were finally approaching an agreement. It looked like Britain was going to receive total control of the region. But during a late-night negotiation session on January 17th, Boutros Ghali came up with a compromise. He reminded the British that if they took control of Sudan, then any goods the region imported to or exported from Egypt would be taxed by the Egyptian government. But if Britain and Egypt had joint rule over the region, trade policies would be much more favorable to the British. The fact that Ghali's arguments worked just drives home his brilliance as a negotiator. England had the military power to seize Sudan by force, but Ghali still managed to convince them to compromise. After the agreement was signed on January 19, 1899, a dual Egyptian and British government shared joint rule over Sudan. Ghali celebrated this as a political win, but the Egyptian public was less convinced. They believed that England had written the terms of the deal, and Ghali was little more than a puppet. Even the Khedive, the Islamic head of state, highlighted Ghali's weakness, stating, let Egypt know that it is with a tearing pain that my Minister of Foreign Affairs signed the act of condominium imposed by the inflexible Lord Cromer. Without this agreement, it's entirely likely that the British could have annexed Sudan or taken it by force. But to the Egyptian people, the compromise still felt like a loss. And since Ghali was the public face of the deal, he took all the blame. The second scandal Ghali faced was known as the Denshawai Incident. On June 13, 1906, a group of British officers marching from Cairo to Alexandria made camp in a peaceful rural region of the Nile Delta. They were bored, hot, and looking for something to do. When they heard there was good hunting in the area, they decided to pay visit to the nearby town of Denshawai. But things quickly took a turn for the worse. For decades, visiting British soldiers had been killing pigeons in Denshawai, which the locals bred for food. Etiquette suggested that the British ask formal permission from villagers before hunting, but that day they failed to do so. The locals asked the officers to stop shooting, but they were ignored. Then a stray bullet accidentally set fire to a barn. As their crops burned, frustrated villagers charged at the officers. More shots were fired and four villagers were hit, including the wife of a local imam. In the chaos of the moment, it looked as if the woman was dead. The villagers continued to fight back, attacking the soldiers with staves and sticks. At least two British officers were wounded. When an Egyptian villager offered one of the wounded men water, he was beaten to death by other British officers who thought he was an attacker. Another wounded officer, Captain Seymour Clark Bull, suffered a severe blow to the head. Despite his injury, a senior officer ordered him to run the eight kilometers back to the camp to get help. The summer sun was hot, 
and Captain Bull died before he made it to the camp. By the end of the scuffle, the villagers overpowered the British. They held the soldiers hostage, but didn't hurt them. When officials came to investigate, the villagers willingly cooperated and handed over their prisoners and the weapons they'd seized. But these steps did little to smooth over tensions. The British government was furious about the attack and set up a special court-martial to prosecute the villagers. The official charge was crimes of violence against the officers and men of the Army of Occupation. Minister of Justice Boutros Ghali was in charge of the trial. The tribunal had a majority of British judges, two of whom spoke no Arabic. And because this was a court-martial and not a traditional court case, the regular rules did not apply. Of the 59 villagers arrested, 52 faced charges. The entire trial lasted just three days, during which the court only heard testimony for the prosecution. No witnesses for the defense were ever called. The Egyptian villagers were accused of premeditating the attack and killing a British officer. But a post-mortem examination concluded that the only officer to die, Captain Bull, was killed by heat stroke, not his injuries. The British also ignored the fact that the villagers had seized all the guns and held the officers unharmed until the police arrived. Not exactly the behavior of a murderous mob. But none of this made any difference. 21 of the 52 villagers on trial were given sentences ranging from lashings to prison terms to a lifetime of penal servitude. Four men were sentenced to death by hanging. Gali supported this ruling, believing that if he was merciful to the villagers, it would only ignite more discontent from the British military. Publicly, the punishments were seen as harsh. One of the men condemned to death, Abdel Hassan Mahfouz, had only told the police the location of the guns that had been taken away from the British. Another, Issa Salem, was sentenced to death for making threatening gestures with the shovel he was holding. Making matters worse, the gallows had arrived in Denshawai before the verdict was even announced. The punishments were carried out in public, and the entire village was forced to watch as their friends and family were tortured, humiliated, and killed. Outrage over the harsh sentences spread throughout the world. Even members of Parliament in England's House of Commons protested their own government's cruelty. In Egypt and other colonial countries, the Denshawai incident, as it was called, became a flashpoint for those fighting against the rule of European governments. At home, Ghali was blamed for not doing more to ensure the tribunal was handled fairly. Once again, Egyptians blamed him for siding with the British over their own interests. His inability to distance himself from the British soon made him the target for assassination. Up next, we'll learn about Ghali's ascent to the position of prime minister and the political scandal that pushed Alwardani over the edge. Now, back to the story. Throughout his long political career, Boutros Ghali suffered scandal after scandal, all tied to his efforts to balance Egyptian and British interests. 
Despite the controversy over the Denshawai incident in 1908, the 62-year-old Ghali was appointed prime minister of Egypt. At this point, the Khedive, or Islamic head of state, was largely a figurehead. The real power was held by the British consul general, the country's head diplomat, who was hand-selected by the British prime minister. In 1905, a new liberal government took power in the United Kingdom, led by Prime Minister Sir Henry Campbell Bannerman. He wanted to take a more lenient approach to Egypt and appointed a new consul general, Eldon Gorst, as the chief British diplomat in the country. Gorst had spent much of his life in Egypt and spoke fluent Arabic. He said his purpose as consul general was to train the Egyptians to take a gradually increasing share in their own government. He didn't just want to rule Egypt, he hoped to help Egypt rule itself. One of his first acts was to restore the position of prime minister and appoint Ghali to the post. The British and Egyptian elite both supported Ghali's appointment, but for different reasons. Each thought they would be able to bend Ghali to their own will. Some of the British believed that through Ghali, they could keep control while looking like they were delegating authority to the Egyptians. Others, like Gorst, seemed to genuinely believe Ghali was prepared to reclaim power for his people. The Khedive approved of Ghali because, even though he wasn't Muslim, he was a native-born Egyptian. The Egyptian elite also thought his leadership might inspire more allegiance from the Copts. But Ghali still managed to find controversy. His third major scandal came with the passage of the draconian press law on March 27, 1909, six months after his appointment as prime minister. The British felt the Egyptian press was overly hostile, often praising political violence, and existing Egyptian libel laws weren't broad enough to put a stop to it. They wanted to revive an 1881 law that was written specifically to repress nationalism. The law would allow the interior minister to shut down newspapers that printed anything that could possibly incite violence or be considered immoral. They could even exile the editorial staff for their writing, all without going to court. The new press law was an immediate disaster. There were public protests throughout the country. At a demonstration on March 31, 1909, days after the law was passed, students and laborers chanted, Long live the press, down with the publication law. Long live the nation. Long live the homeland down with despotism. As the official who signed the law, the protesters directed a lot of their anger toward Ghali specifically. One nationalist newspaper called him an unjust and thoughtless tyrant. Ghali considered resigning over the controversy, but ultimately chose not to. If he had, history may have turned out very differently. In June of 1909, the press law led to its first major prosecution when journalist Abdalaziz Jawish was charged for an article he wrote condemning the Denshawai incident. In the article, Jawish attacked Ghali for his role, saying, Hail to those innocent souls which Boutros Ghali Pasha, president of the special tribunal, tore from their bodies as silk is torn from thorns. He took these souls in his hand 
and offered them as holocaust to the cruel and oppressive tyrant whose only aim is to destroy us. Gali belongs to a party among the Egyptians which fears the English more than God, people who only seek fortune and promotion, even though their country is oppressed and their own dignity sacrificed. Jawish was fined, but he kept writing. His next article praised the Indian nationalist Madanlal Dengra, who assassinated a British official named Sir William Hutt Curzon Willie. Gali was upset by the article, afraid it would inspire someone to take action against himself. In August of 1909, Jawish was arrested and sentenced to prison. But even behind bars, Jawish was able to write attacks on Gali and secret them to publishers, calling him a traitor and a collaborator. His articles didn't directly incite an assassination attempt, but the fallout from the press law would continue to haunt Gali for the next few months. The fourth scandal that rocked Gali's administration started in 1908. The subject this time was the Suez Canal. Since the canal was opened in 1869, it had become one of the most heavily traveled shipping lanes in the world. Ships that once had to go around Africa to reach India and Asia could now cut through the Mediterranean and Red Seas, saving days or weeks of travel time. This resulted in increased trade with Eastern Africa and an enormous boost to the world economy. Egypt had sold its shares in the Suez Canal Company to the British government in 1875, opening the door for British control. That contract was set to expire in 1968, at which point the canal would revert back to Egyptian control. But the British wanted to find a way to continue their profitable investment. The Suez Canal Company approached the Egyptian government with a plan to extend the contract an extra 40 years, until 2008. In exchange, they offered Egypt a lump sum of 4 million British pounds, over 580 million U.S. dollars in today's currency, along with a share of the profits from the canal's tolls. The financial gain carried a hidden cost. The agreement gave Britain a backdoor to increase its military presence in Egypt under the guise of protecting the canal. The Egyptian government, led by Ghali, spent over a year negotiating the deal with the Suez Canal Company and the British government. But these conversations all took place behind closed doors, and we can only speculate about what happened. According to some close to Ghali, he privately opposed the deal, but feared how the British would react if he publicly rejected it. But according to others, he supported the British position privately as well as publicly. Once the agreement was revealed, there was a public uproar. Egyptian people wanted the canal returned and the British gone as soon as possible. Ghali and other assembly members received threats, either reject the agreement or face deadly consequences. Instead of signing the deal directly, Ghali took the unusual step of submitting a proposal to the General Assembly. Perhaps he thought the legislative body would take the heat if the proposal went through. Or maybe he hoped that they would bravely oppose the plan that he couldn't speak out against. When Ghali presented the proposal to the Assembly on February 9, 1910, 
23-year-old Ibrahim Alwardani was sitting in the spectators' gallery. To him, it seemed clear that the debates were purely for show. The only Egyptian who could change the terms of the contract was Ghali. Because of Alwardani, Ghali wouldn't live to see the issue resolved. February 20th, 1910, started out as an ordinary day for Prime Minister Ghali. His 15-month term had been full of challenges, but with the Suez Canal contract decision at hand, he was hopeful his administration could turn a new page. Even though it was a Sunday, Ghali reported to the ministry building that morning. He left the building just after noon, walking down the front steps as usual. A few yards away, Alwardani lied in wait. Alwardani didn't feel the need to hide what he was about to do. As Ghali approached his car, Alwardani fired a shot from only about a yard away. He ran towards the prime minister and fired five more times at close range. Ghali fell to the ground in the ministry courtyard. Bystanders screamed and called out for help. A group of fellow ministers, pashas, and judges quickly gathered, and a doctor was summoned to keep him hanging on to life. Alwardani surrendered to the police immediately. It was all according to plan. With five gunshots, Egypt's independence might finally come to pass. Thanks for listening to Assassinations. We'll be back Monday with part two of the assassination of Boutros Ghali. We'll discuss how the government of Egypt brought an assassin to justice without turning him into a martyr. We'll also look at the next steps for the Egyptian people and whether they finally gained the freedom that Alwardani was fighting for. You can find all episodes of Assassinations and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Assassinations, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Assassinations on Spotify, just open the app and type Assassinations in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Assassinations was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It's produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Paul Mahler, Maggie Admire, and Travis Clark. This episode of Assassinations was written by Margaret LeBron and stars Kate Leonard and Bill Thomas. Mm-hmm.